I'm Maria Shriver, and this is Meaningful Conversations. On every episode, we'll take a journey into the lives of inspiring, thoughtful, thought-provoking people. People who are smart, spirited, and spiritual. People who have done extraordinary things to make a positive impact on our world. These are people I respect and admire. People who inspire me. I want them to share their stories, their experiences, their wisdom, and their feelings with you. I hope we can come together in community to reflect on the issues and topics that we're all thinking about, but no one seems to be talking about. I hope that you're inspired to have more meaningful conversations with the people in your life. Sharon Salzberg is someone I've admired for quite some time. She's one of America's preeminent voices on meditation, Buddhism, and her work and practices are beloved by millions. Sharon herself came to meditation after a childhood of loss and turmoil. Meditation helped her overcome suffering and set her on this path to help others heal from its transformational powers as well. She's the author of 10 books, believe that, 10 books, including Real Happiness and Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Today, Sharon talks with me about the concept of loving kindness and how we can offer it to ourselves and others during these tumultuous times. I am here with a friend, someone I admire, someone I have spoken with in the past, and I wanted to speak with her again because I'm always lifted up when I'm in conversation with Sharon Salzberg. And we're here on a rainy day in California, in Los Angeles, so you can maybe hear the rain behind us, but maybe you'll use it as a meditative tool to, you know, tap, tap, tap. Wow, you can really hear it. So welcome, my friend Sharon Salzberg, New York Times bestselling author, co-founder of the Insight Meditation Center, one of the original Buddhist teachers, and as I said, someone that I look to as a teacher. So good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much. Good. So we've talked before, and I love this book you wrote called Real Love. And I want to begin, since this is called Meaningful Conversations, Sharon, where do you find meaning? What does a meaningful life look like to you? A meaningful life, I mean, my meaning in life yes. has been, I think, somehow changing suffering into connection. Wow. You know, like having whatever we go through as human beings, which could be anything, uh, realizing we're not alone and helping other people realize they're not alone. And then uh, I think that many people can find meaning in that kind of that kind of effort. So do you, when you, how did you find what was meaningful for you? And I use the word meaningful uh, instead of purpose because I find that people come up to me a lot and say like, I can't find my purpose, I can't find my purpose. And they're, they have a lot of anxiety around trying to find their purpose. And then when I say, well, what's meaningful to you? they're more readily able to answer that question. So how did you figure out what was meaningful to you? You know, I, I think it was kind of given to me more than I figured it out. I went to India when I was very young. I was 18. I was, it was sort of like my junior year abroad, and I had gone to learn how to meditate. I just had Why? this. Well, that is such an interesting question. <laughs> I wish I could answer that. I'd had a very, as you know, a very difficult and traumatic childhood, like many people, and I had learned about meditation when I was in college, just in a class, an Asian philosophy class. And somehow I had a burning intuition that I could I could use that, that could help me. And I, I was 
college in Buffalo, New York, and this, of course, was a long time ago. So I looked around. It was before there was a yoga center on every street corner. You know? Yeah, so right, right. I looked around Buffalo. I didn't see it anywhere. So I created a project for the university. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, okay. So I went with my student loans and my scholarship, left to wow. India. So, And once I began meditating, I just knew, I thought, there's truth here for me. And What does that mean, there's truth here? There was something, for- I mean, it was difficult. You know, I struggled and I was... It was my first real bout of introspection, for one thing. So it was like going to therapy for the first time. It was like, whoa, look at what I'm feeling. Um, what were you feeling? I was feeling tremendous anger, for one thing, and a kind of blankness or despair that I had to like really sit with and, and get underneath. And I was also very judgmental. You know, I didn't appreciate feeling the anger. I, I first, uh, at one point, I marched up to my first meditation teacher. His name was S.N. Goenka. And I looked at him and I said, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was on him. Of course, I've been hugely angry. But even though there was so much difficulty, I just knew this was the right thing to do, that this, this could help, this, this would help, and it did. How did it help? Well, I felt like, uh, for one thing, as one does in meditation, uh, all the same things might be happening, but I'd have some space from it at the same time. So it was almost like something arising in a big space rather than my taking it to heart and saying, I'm such an angry person, I always will be, and I'm just awful, and what if any ever found out? You know, it was just like, oh, yeah, there's anger. It's like, a wet, it's like the rain moving through me. It's like a storm moving through me. What's interesting to me, you mentioned you had a traumatic childhood, <laughs> as, and, and you said as many people did. And then in meditation, you were able to kind of be aware of the anger, be aware of the frustration, be aware of your childhood. But all of your writing has been about turning those experiences into love. (laughs) And that's a woe for a lot of people. How do you go from having a traumatic childhood to having tremendous anger to turning that into love? Uh, I, obviously, it's not automatic, you know, because yeah. so many people suffer, and not everyone emerges with greater compassion and a feeling of connection. I did have a tremendous role model of one of my teachers, a woman, um, whose nickname is like Deepa Ma, Deepa's mother, and she'd had tremendous suffering in her life, and she lost her children, she lost her husband, she was in Burma at the time when her husband died very suddenly, and the doctor came and said, you're actually going to die of a broken heart if you don't do something about your mind. You should learn how to meditate. And she got out of bed. She still had Deepa, her, her surviving daughter, to raise. And she got out of bed and she went to the meditation center. And when she emerged, she was like, I mean, you never get over it, of course, you know, but it's some some kind of metabolizing, metabolizing almost where the suffering had, had become this huge compassion. And uh, she was the person who told me to teach. So she's sort of like a direct, um, like a, a lineage, you know. So really, her. that it kind of in healing yourself gave you your meaningful life because it gave you yeah, your yeah. passion to do the same for others. Yeah, yeah. How do you tell that you're doing that for others? How can you feel that? Yeah, I, I think it is about connection, and there's some sense inside of rightness because. Uh, it may not be meaningful in, this, in society's definition. Like, I keep thinking of um, this woman. I wrote one book called Real Happiness at Work. Right. And I had a lot of work conversations with people after that. You can see uh, Sharon has written, how many books is it? Ten. Eight. I ten. 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 I thought it was eight. Ten yeah. books. And they're all unique. 
unto themselves. They all speak to different times in your life, but they cover really pretty much all of our aspects of our life. But go ahead. So I was doing a workshop and, and she was there and we were talking about real happiness at work. And, and she was sort of like beaming. She was like this radiant being. And then she said, I work in a call-in center fielding customer complaints. And she said, and I love everybody. Like I treat them with great respect. By the time they get to me, I'm like the third person they've spoken to. They're enraged. But she said, I can't always help them, but I'm always honest. If I say I'll get back to you by 2 o'clock, I get back to you by 2 o'clock. And she said, every conversation is important to me. And I looked at her, and I had recently, before then, just recently been a complaining customer somewhere. <laughs> that had not been my experience. You yeah. know? And she was like, she meant it. You know, that every conversation was an avenue of expression of her values. So she clearly wasn't thinking about society's, you know, diminishment of her role or uh, something so like that. So how is that? How do we, because the world, I think, that everybody's existing in, right, it elevates certain jobs, certain kind of points of view, and diminishes others, as you mm -hmm, say. Mm -hmm. So how do you stay in meaning, stay in passion, stay in purpose, mm -hmm. even if it's not valued yeah. by society? Yeah, well, to some extent, it's reminding oneself of what we really care about, each and every one of us, every day. And to some extent, it's a kind of community. It's like, if I think about the people who maybe come into someone's home and care for someone with Alzheimer's. Right. You know, as an example. Caregivers, right. The caregivers, yeah. who, many of whom I am drawn to work with, that sort of population, uh -huh. and whether it's professional or personal in people's lives. And the energy and the presence and the compassion is enormous. It's in, and, and it's so not valued in it's our so society. Valued. And I'm, yeah. I'm constantly in conversation with myself, actually, about how to fix that, mm -hmm. how to make people care about uh, people with Alzheimer's, how to make people care about the kind of backbreaking mm -hmm. work that caregivers do, how to make people care about people as they age and businesses seem to throw them out or young people seem not to be concerned with aging parents. I read a statistic the other day that said 70% of people in nursing homes have no family visitors. And I'm just like, what? Mm -hmm. So you work with people that whose professions are not valued yeah. in our society. So how do you help them? How can we help people? And I think this often goes to women who are, you know, mothering yeah, and, uh, you know, feeling like no one sees that, even though we say, oh, we think motherhood is great or fatherhood is great, but we don't really value yeah, it. Yeah, They're yeah, not on the cover yeah. of a magazine for simply doing that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is hard work. <laughs> Which is the most important work that we do because it makes the difference, as you said, between whether you have a great childhood and a great life or whether you're working on fixing your life really the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, some of it is actually through meditations like loving kindness meditation where you're also offering love and compassion to yourself. And some of it, I found, is actually through understanding. It's through... You know, many people who burn out, many people who feel vicarious trauma, many people who feel... Wait, wait a second, vicarious trauma, what's that? Okay, vicarious trauma is really almost like absorbing the symptoms of trauma, of traumatic injury, because the people you're working with are in some traumatic circumstance. It's like, oh. you know, if I was a nurse in that nursing home and I saw this poor little old lady every day, had no visitors, it would start to weigh on me in a different way, you know, and if I 
got really embroiled in that and overwhelmed by that, I would, I would just feel it's too much, you know. So Which, is that trauma by association? Yeah, it's like so trauma by association. So you can feel that not just in work, but if you're in a devaluing relationship. Yeah, exactly. You're experiencing trauma by association. So you can feel yeah. it at home, at work. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that politically, actually. Yeah. We're seeing that in our larger space that people, and I put myself in, are traumatized in a way by what's going on and a confusion. Do I have to be as angry as other people seem to be in order to put my voice or make it be heard? Or what is the right way? Should I be offering loving kindness to a political leader that I may not feel loving mm-hmm. kindness mm-hmm. for? Well, I, I tend to try to take it away from the shoulds because it's it's a big question. It's a very real question. I get asked it every day. You oh, know? really? Really? Like if even if I'm like on Twitter doing a tweet chat, you know, like a, yeah. a thing and. I'll talk about loving kindness and somebody will say, why should I feel loving kindness for someone who doesn't think I should exist because I'm trans or I'm, you know, brown or, you know, whatever it is. And I said, yeah, I'm other. And and so I say, of course, it's not meaning you should like them and it doesn't mean you should approve of them or stop fighting them. But there's something about being consumed by someone else's negativity where it's what we're hooked into and we're thinking about it all the time and we're... It's like they're inhabiting our brain and our life force, and we want to be free of that. And so, How do you get free of that? Because it seems like much of the country, mm-hmm. one person is, has inhabited their life force. Yes, it's true. And in the media as well. The media is consumed by one person. I think we find our own boundaries, and we remember that, you know, to quote every great sage, starting with my, you know, knowledge of the Buddha, hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred only ceases by love. Hatred, let's pause a second, because that's a very big... It is big. (laughs) It's big. Hatred. Never ceases by hatred. Like Hatred ceases by love. Hatred ceases by love. So, And you have written, and I've read interviews with you, where you talk about, you advise or suggest to people to love somebody that perhaps they hate. Mm -hmm. And people say, I don't want to do that. It's going to make me weak. They're going to take advantage of me. I don't want to be that person. Why are they wrong? Well, I, I mean, uh, I, again, I would probably try to take it out of the realm of wrong as so much as yeah. are you willing to make an experiment, Okay. you know, to see if having some compassion for that person makes you have bad boundaries, really? Does it actually weaken you? Because there are ways in which you could look at somebody and think, that's a mess. It's a mess of a life choice, you know, like what's going to feel like at the end of your life to be that alone having turned off everybody or... You know, and that compassion, that sense doesn't mean, oh, I hope you get your way, you know, like keep hurting people at all. But but there's just some sense of like, you know, it could be different. It might never be different for you. But um, this is not a happy state, actually. And it's hardest. So I know when I get asked this, too, when you look at somebody and they seem totally self-satisfied, they're doing fine, you know. And you're thinking you're creating havoc and you're causing so much pain. And if you could only fray a little at the edges, I'd feel better. Uh-huh. You know, but I think what we're actually seeing is people are fraying. And, but in terms of media, it's very interesting because I decided that part of that um, healthier relationship is having better boundaries myself in terms of how much I absorb. and With media. With media. Yeah, you know? myself. And I'm a member of the media, yeah. but I consider myself a member of humanity first before I'm a member of the media. And I've put boundaries up 
on how much media I consume and what media mm-hmm. I consume mm-hmm. and that I don't come home. I used to come home and watch the news all night long. I don't do that anymore because yeah. yeah, yeah. I wasn't sleeping and I was. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's a smart thing that we can all do. It doesn't mean we're not going to be informed. It just means we're going to put boundaries mm-hmm. between what may feel like a lot of negativity mm-hmm. and our own peace of mind. Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah, I'm saying that. And then I think out of that kind of boundary and that sense of, first of all, sleeping, you know, and yeah. having having like a good effect from all that. We find we can take action. I think the people we, you know, so deeply admire, the Martin Luther King Juniors of the world, he didn't go around saying that idiot, you know, like, yeah. you know, they should tear him limb from limb. It was like the beloved community, you know, how can we go past our own hatred and find strength and energy and forcefulness, but not from that kind of hatred. Do you think that the country is ready for a leader who speaks of love, who speaks of the beloved, who speaks of empathy and compassion? I'd like to think so. (laughs) I'd like to think so, but I'm not sure. Yeah. It's very hard because there's that, that big problem of thinking that's sentimental, that just... Weak. Makes you weak. And well, what about that? Can you explain? And I've read some interviews where, you know, people always say, if I'm loving, if I'm empathetic, if I'm compassionate, people will perceive me as weak. I'll lose my edge. I'll lose my drive. Yeah. Well, that, again, it comes down to an experiment. You know, like, I wouldn't, that's why, you know, and I think also in terms of right and wrong, but it's not exactly that, I don't think, because then you feel bad about yourself and you just spiral out, you know, like with condemning yourself, like I can't get there. I can't, I can't do it. And it's not exactly that. It's that we've been taught certain things about strength, about happiness, about aloneness. And we're going to counter all that conditioning. We're going to move against that. We're going to move certainly away from it and take a look. Is that really true? So is that what you advise people and not, I know you don't use should do this or that the experiment that anybody who's listening could do is to step back and really question everything you've been taught and look at it again. Do I actually believe that? Yeah. And what's, what's the consequence? You know, it's like, (laughs) I uh, didn't reveal any vulnerability, you know, in this, in this friendship for 10 years. What's the consequence of that? You know, how connected do I really feel? Or I, you know, I was so afraid of showing this or that, that I just shut it down. So what's the consequence of that? Or there's a story in Real Love about a friend of mine who said at one point in her life, she realized she was the kind of person who would be riding in the car with her husband, boiling hot. And the most she could bring herself to say was, are you warm, dear? You know, rather than would you think about turning down the temperature of boiling yeah. hot? You know, and she said, that changed, <laughs> you know? Right. You know, so maybe that's what we see is that, oh, I've, I've tried to project this image for so long and it's left me feeling really alone. So it's taking a look at everything. Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. This episode of Meaningful Conversations is brought to you by Living Proof. Living Proof, you probably know it, is a line of hair products that tackle the toughest beauty challenges with technology from MIT scientists. That means their products are backed by science, not just marketing gimmicks. From frizz to damage to fullness, Living Proof 
products do exactly what they claim to do without using silicones, parabens, phthalates, or animal testing. Like their award-winning dry shampoo that actually cleans your hair. Whoa. Unlike other dry shampoos on the market, Living Proof doesn't just mask oil, sweat, and odors, but removes them completely, leaving your hair looking clean, fresh, ready to go. It's no wonder they've won eight Best of Beauty Breakthrough Awards. Living Proof is delivering results that you can see from across the room. So try Living Proof today by visiting livingproof.com meaningful and use promo code meaningful to get free samples of their award-winning dry shampoo with your purchase. That's livingproof.com meaningful, promo code meaningful for a free sample of dry shampoos with your purchase. Again, livingproof.com slash meaningful, promo code meaningful. Now let's get back to the conversation. Do you find that a lot of people that you work with teach to say, you know, I've tried to keep this image up and I find myself really alone? Yeah. You do. And so if somebody's out there feeling really alone, whether they're in a marriage or not in a marriage, or what's the best, uh, not advice, or what's the best experiment that they could do? I'll give advice. What? I'll give advice. (laughs) Well, for me, of course, it's been in the realm of meditation, which some people think of as withdrawal, but I found was the source of all connection. I found layers to myself I never would have guessed at, and... And then just being with people, it's like, how often are we actually listening? And especially if we've got a designation for them, like going back to those caregivers who are like heroic often. Right, right. You know, how often do we actually just take them in for who they are, mm-hmm. you know, or a person we meet casually or a stranger, you know, whatever it is. And, and there's just a different kind of connection that it's onward leading, you know, it grows and grows and grows. So just from being present. So you have to first be connected to yourself. Yeah. Or, yeah. And connected, I always say connected to God or connected mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. however you define the universe, right? Mm-hmm. And then that allows you to connect to another person. Mm-hmm. And you call that mindful connection yeah. real love. Yeah. So explain that because I have to say for, you know, growing up as a young woman, when I spoke about love, it wasn't like this. Yeah. I wasn't, this wasn't even in my, like, sphere. You know, you're, like, looking at the movies. You're thinking of someone who sweeps you off your feet, who takes you to an incredible dinner, who builds a life with you. I mean, that's kind of your fairy tale of love. And you're really Mm -hmm. proposing that real love, as your book says, is the art of mindful connection. Mm -hmm. Well, it's (laughs) plentiful, for one thing. (laughs) You know, those relationships are much more rare. And I don't want to put them down I mean that's that is what we're taught and it's there's a great beauty obviously to you know uh sharing something with somebody that's that intimate and that that personal so but leaving that aside if we're hooked on that and that's the only kind of love we allow and uh, the only thing that seems right then everything else those beautiful moments of just like a child smiling at you in the playground or you know helping somebody cross the street you know or or whatever it might be. I was just in Puerto Rico, and there was a time when um, I was sitting waiting for something, and I was sitting on a couch somewhere in a nice air-conditioned room, and this couple came in, an older Puerto Rican couple, and he was using a walker. So you know, I moved over so that 
he would have a seat on the couch. And then I said to her, should I get up? Would, would you like to sit down? And she looked at me and she said, are you Sharon? And I said, yeah. And she said, I've read all your books. <laughs> it, was just oh. like, it was like this beautiful moment, which I thought of, I'd been on my phone, you know, and hadn't even looked up at her to see she might want to see. You know, it wouldn't have happened. And how did that make you feel? Oh, I felt incredible. You know, I was astonished, you know, I thought, wow, you know, like, but it was this beautiful moment. Right. Dan Siegel, who you probably know, who yeah. works, has just written the book called Aware and who works certainly on the brain and works on redefining for people also what love is because people find like, well, I'm in this relationship, but I don't feel love or I'm doing this job, I feel nothing. And so many people feel nothing. And I remember Eve Ensler saying to me once that until she got cancer, she never noticed the love that was all around her existing all the time because she was looking up here for that love story, that one and only thing. And she had missed all of these incredible moments of love that were existing, mm-hmm. someone bringing her a glass of water, someone getting up, someone asking her how she was, someone going to dinner with her. So your work is really, I think, to heal people, ask them to look at everything that might be keeping them from love, and then to look at love in a new way. You mm-hmm. call it real love. Yeah, well, the publisher really calls it real love, you know. Like, <laughs> but, uh, well, yeah, but it's your... But you I know mean, what I mean, yeah. Right, but it, that's kind of... <laughs> You know, I like Susan Kane, who I just interviewed actually <laughs> on the Today Show, the author of Quiet. She said, This book has the power to set your heart at peace. How do you define peace? I would actually define it as a kind of harmony. It's like those moments where we just feel okay. When I was talking about rightness before, mm-hmm. it's like, All right, this is right. You know, this is, this is a moment that can stand on its own. I don't have to think about what to add or what to take away. It's just like, Okay, here we are. And I do think it's partly because we're misled. I mean, she's, of course, champion introvert. You yeah. Know? And, yes. You know, we're misled into thinking that you're only really caring if you're extroverted, if you're going to all those parties or you're, you're whatever. But is that true? Or if you have a quieter life, are you disconnected? Not necessarily. And so I love that invitation. Like, let's look at this totally differently. It's like years ago, I read a book on faith mm-hmm. called Faith. Mm-hmm. And it was the same thing. It was like... You know, people were so upset with me. Like, why are you writing a book on that? You know, it's like I've been hurt by faith or I, I equate faith with being silenced and not being able to ask questions. And I, I said, isn't it great to, like, reclaim the word? Let's reclaim the word. And I feel like in some way I'm doing that with love, you know, where it's it, it's so um, misunderstood and, and people are so and so lonely at the yeah. same time. So I think what, what I hear you saying is really also to reclaim your own story. Mm-hmm. And that's really the power that we all have. We tell often times a negative story, why we can't do this, why we didn't achieve that, why we're hurt by this, why we can't be lovable. And you're asking us to reclaim our story, put ourselves in the driver's seat, and look at all of these words that might be trauma points for us or might be trigger points, whatever the mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. And, and adapt a different point of view to them. Yeah, at least see, you know, step away from the old interpretation. Do you find that you've been been teaching meditation, loving kindness, written all these books? What are you noticing in the culture right now that's different from a year ago, two years ago, or when you began? Well, in terms of the states, I mean, there is a political pressure happening that is different. Like, 
for people who are unhappy. You know, not everyone is unhappy with the direction of the country, but for people who aren't happy, I tend to meet quite a number of them. There's also almost a devastating feeling of helplessness or helplessness. Not so much anymore since the last election, but there was just a sense, there was a gap between feeling, especially feelings of anger and action, you know, being able to channel that in, into some kind of action. And my hope is that that's changed, whether it's action with a neighbor or city council or, you know, a community playground or mm. in a, an electoral pol- political sense. But so you, fa- you felt up until the last election a, a real unease or a dis dissatisfaction as you traveled around. Yeah. And it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that more people, whether it's they're dissatisfied with the political situation or dissatisfied with the 24-hour email situation, or that they're seeking a different way, that yes. there is an interest. Yeah. As you said, now you see a yoga place or a meditation place on in many cities where there were none before. What's mm-hmm. that telling you about what people are looking for? Well, I think people are, we're looking for one another, for one thing. I, mean, this I is, love that. This is all, you know, this <laughs> oh, is, my God, we're looking for one another. <laughs> Who we are. You know, it's coexistent. I keep reading, like, there's an epidemic of loneliness, and there's, yes. you know, there's a minister of loneliness in Japan and, and, and England. And one in Great and, Britain, yeah. Yeah, you know, and, and look at this. We're so <clears throat> lonely. We're so cut off from one another. And the other reason to translate one's emotion into action is fear. You know, there's a tremendous amount of fear. I feel a different level of fear. It just as a human being born Jewish, you know, mm-hmm. in this country, it's kind of astonishing and to have, I live in Massachusetts, but I have an apartment in New York and, you know, to have the school that's a block away be painted with swastikas or something like that. And I thought, well, I never thought I'd see this, you know, here. And so being able to, I mean, one of the things the Buddha said about love or loving kindness is it's the antidote to fear. You know. So when you feel a sense of persecution or anxiety or fear, you drop into loving kindness meditation, yeah, yeah. and that helps you. It helps me a lot. It's kind of the point I always try to make is it doesn't make me stupid. You know, like there are perhaps real threats out there in, in different people's lives, but it takes away this kind of, first of all, it's like when we're afraid, all, all our energy is like drawn in, you know, and. We can't help but think of all the terrible things that might happen. Well, this could happen or that even worse. Yeah. Or that, you know. And so we're living in an imaginary universe at that point. You know, that's a story. And if we can come back to, okay, this happened, and I have resources. Let me build up those inner resources so I can meet what's happening in a different way, then it actually is very effective. More meaningful conversations in just a bit. Of all the meaningful conversations we can have, one of the most important is about our mental health. The new podcast, Inner Space, with Dr. Barbara Van Dahlen, is bringing together people from the world of entertainment, business, religion, and politics to help you understand your own inner space, develop emotionally healthy habits, recognize the signs of emotional pain in ourselves and loved ones, and find new ways to care for those who are suffering. We all need this. Inner Space features conversations with people like Minister Tobias Elwood, Daryl Hammond, Ronnie Frank, and of course, many more. You're bound to learn so much from each of these episodes because Dr. Barbara is really insightful. She's the founder and president of the nonprofit Give an Hour, 
She was named in 2012 to Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. And she's worked closely with the Obama administration to create and launch the Campaign to Change Direction. Plus, she's the mental health consultant for the hit ABC drama, A Million Little Things. I've known Barbara and I interviewed her along with Talinda Bennington as architects of change. And I was impressed with both of them and the incredible work that they're doing. And they've also contributed to my online publication, The Sunday Paper. Both of those women are doing really extraordinary work. So I'm super excited that Dr. Barbara's going to have her own podcast called Inner Space. So go listen to Inner Space. Anywhere podcasts are offered, just search Inner Space Barbara. That's Inner Space Barbara. Give it a listen after this show. And good luck, Barbara. Now back to the conversation. I'm reading Mary Pfeiffer's new book, and she talks about the importance that all of us have inner resources. And so many people, I feel, don't feel, and I would say that I was one of them, that I doubted my inner resources. I wondered, can I handle my mother dying? Could I handle you know, my kids leaving home. I was always like, I don't know, can I handle, can I handle? And only to come to realize that everything I was looking for, I actually already had in me. But how do people come to learn that? Well, I learned it by looking within, which I had never done before. It was like, look at that. You know, first of all, we're very externally oriented. We're very busy. Yeah. You know, usually in a rush. And, And nowadays we're usually, you know, if we have a moment, we're on our phone. You right. know, and so. I get in the elevator in New York all the time, and no one even looks up. Yeah. Oh, no. You wouldn't have to do that. Yeah. I, I keep trying to explain that. No, but I, I often find myself going, hello. And then everybody looks up. They're like, what? What? I was like, just, hi. <laughs> and then everybody was like, that's oh, scary. Weird. Yeah, I mean, that's for weird. a New Yorker. Like, but how do people come to realize that they have everything they need? Well, I, I really, I remember those moments, like... When I would feel just this kind of wave of love for myself or for someone else in the course of the meditation, I would go, wow, look at that. I never knew I could feel that. One of the things I learned through meditation was kind of playing with my attention so that if I was in the elevator, because I also grew up in New York City and it's a little weird to have someone talk to you, you know, so. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) If it weren't you, but I was in an elevator now, I would still feel, you know, someone would start talking to me and I'd go, what do you want? But I look at that and I'd say, oh, that's funny. That's, that's the childhood. That's a vestigial feeling from childhood, you know. And I look at them and I, you know, I think, what's it going to cost me to say hello? You know, like right. nothing. And so it's like my energy is all over the place and I bring it together, which is exactly what I learned to do in meditation. You know, and every time I feel I'm distracted, I try to come back. Every time I feel I'm not listening, I try to come back. And so it's almost like the muscle that got developed in meditation is exactly what I use. And then, then there's a sense of connection. Are you astounded that you can make a living, travel all over the world? <laughs> I am. Uh, at doing your teaching? I'm astonished. You're astonished. I am. When we, Jack Cornfield and Joseph Goldstein and I opened the Insight Meditation Society, Valentine's Day, 1976. Wow. And our mantra the first year was, we can always close in a year. No one wants to come, which is, we're just closing the year. And people came. Not, met, not that many, but, you know, people came and then more people came and then more people came. And then it's just, it's all these years later, you know, and, and look what's happened. 
So what I love about that is that you followed something that was meaningful to you, that brought meaning to you, that you felt had saved you in many ways. You started in community with two other people, and you started small. Mm -hmm. And you had this mantra of, well, whatever, it can always... And here you are, whatever that is, 40-some years later, 10 books under your belt, traveling all over the world with a message that heals people. Astonishing. And so lucky. I'm so I'm like the luckiest person, you know, that I get to do this. I mean, it didn't used to be thought of as a career. You know? Right. Yeah. And why do you think it is thought of as a career today? Well, I mean, everything has changed, especially with the kind of movement of mindfulness into the mainstream culture framed by science and, and research rather than a particular faith tradition or any faith tradition. And people say to me, I'm a mindfulness coach or... I don't know what that means, actually, you know. I think that's great, you know. Or I'm doing my degree in mindfulness at Oxford or Cambridge, where you can Uh do each place. And and I think, wow, what's happened? What's happened? What has happened? I I mean, some of it is the science and the the research and people. Some of it's longing, such a deep longing for belonging, you know, some sense of being at home somewhere in life that for many people is answered by a faith tradition, but not by everybody. Don't go away. We'll have more of the conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about one of our sponsors. Five years ago, Casper revolutionized the mattress industry by making it easier than ever to buy a premium foam mattress. Today, they're building on that legacy with a new line of mattresses that combine the best of both worlds. Introducing the Hybrid Collection by Casper. Their acclaimed foam layers now available with springs. Casper's new hybrid mattresses combine the pressure relief of their award-winning foam with durable yet gentle springs. This new innovation offers the best of both worlds, luxurious comfort and resilient support. Added benefits of the Hybrid Collection elevated lift support, increased airflow for cooling, durability for all body types, and enhanced edge support. Well, even with springs, these mattresses still come magically in a box that simply arrives on your doorstep with bedding, bed frames, and even a glow light that helps you fall asleep. Casper has everything you need to create the perfect sleep environment. And when you buy a mattress from Casper, you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. I really like that, that's cool. So give a try to a Casper mattress today and feel the difference a good night's sleep can make. Again, you get 100 nights to experience it for yourself. And you can get $100 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com meaningful and using meaningful at checkout. Terms and conditions do apply. Once again, that's C-A-S-P-E-R dot meaningful. Now let's get back to the conversation. Is loneliness the same as longing? So I was thinking, yes, it's so fun to play with words. Yeah. It would be that precise. And I think they're very similar. For me, the word loneliness has more of a hint of disappointment. You know, there's just some sense to me in loneliness of I tried and it didn't work or, you know, I don't have the energy to keep Trying with longing. Longing can be a, a tremendous motivation. It's like, 
if I look back at my going to India at the age of 18, I think, what was that? You know, like, I look at 18-year-olds and I think, no way, you know? Yeah. How did I do that? And I wasn't completely alone. I was with some friends, but still, I'd never even been to California when I went to India. You know, I grew up on the East Coast. And and, uh, there it was. The longing was so strong. And I didn't, you know, arrive in New Delhi and, and... I wasn't greeted by a teacher saying, I've been waiting for you. You know, it wasn't one of those stories. Like, I wandered around. I kept looking. I kept searching and not finding what I wanted. And then one day it was there. So your longing brought you to your meaning. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps it's longing has a kind of, and I have felt longing in my life, and it had, I've always kind of had a sadness to it, but you're actually saying that your longing can lead you mm-hmm. to your belonging. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Your longing can lead you to your belonging. Because if you be- if you feel like you belong, you don't long. That's right. Yeah, I remember somebody once said to me a couple years ago, longing is not love. You're not if yeah. you're in a relationship and you're longing, perhaps you should question mm-hmm. and take a look at why you feel that, right? And you can be lonely. I've met many well-known people who are lonely in a crowd or lonely. And so we also, Sharon and I were just talking kind of, I think that we don't really have a language that kind of for people who feel a lot of these things and and wonder like, what's wrong with me that I have a million followers on Facebook and I feel alone? Mm -hmm. What's wrong with me that I'm making all this money and I have a longing for something else I don't feel? like I thought I would or like I'm supposed to. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I feel also very lucky in having lived in Asia and, you know, in India and countries like India and Burma and, and Nepal because there's also a model of somebody who is not relating to people in the ordinary way, you know, like a monastic or a hermit or somebody like that, who feels deeply, deeply com- connected to humanity. Yeah. And all of their work, their prayers, their efforts are for the sake of others. Even though to us it looks totally bizarre. Like, what are you doing there in that hut? You know, in the mountain. Get out of there. Get a job. But it's just another model which has always been there for me. And as a a kind of a path forward. Yeah. And so, like, if they talk about social connection in a medical setting and how important it is as a healing agent to have a sense, to be part of a, a network. I've asked people, you know, is that quantitative? Like, does that mean if you only have two friends, you need to get four, you know? Uh-huh. And they say, no, it's, it's a feeling. It's a feeling of being connected. It's not numbers. That's you know? super important for everybody who's counting their clicks and counting That's their right. numbers. So I think Sharon and I could talk forever, but I think that you can check out Sharon's uh, website. You can join her meditation challenge. You can read any one of 10 of her books which are moving, and you can remember her words here today, right, that your longing can lead you to your meaning. And your meaningful life is where you feel like you belong and where you feel like you're doing what works for you, regardless of uh, what society tells you about your choice. And I think that is the, that's what builds foundation, that's what builds peace, that's what builds belonging, Right? Yeah, thank you. That was beautiful. Uh, it was. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> there you go. Okay, well, I'm going to end on that. Sharon Salzberg, uh, the book is Real Love. That's the recent one, but you can go to her website and find out all about her books or go to Amazon and buy her books. 
and you can go to her teachings and she travels all over the world, which is why it was so hard to get her to come here. But I'm so grateful that she did. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Meaningful Conversations. If you're looking for more inspiration and words of wisdom, then please sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Sunday Paper. It's free and it's really good. Just visit my website, mariashriver.com to subscribe. I hope you'll also check out my book, I've Been Thinking, and its new companion, I've Been Thinking, The Journal. Like this podcast, these books were created to help you on your path to a meaningful life. More details on my website about all of that as well. Thanks so much for listening, and I look forward to being in community with you again right here each Monday.